Welcome to Full Scope, a weekly medical podcast designed to teach, inspire, and encourage listeners to question everything they know. I'm your host, Bill Brandenburg. Smallpox is a devastating human viral infection. Prior to its eradication, it's believed to have killed 500 million people in the last 100 years of its existence. Back in its heyday, smallpox is believed to have been the cause of a third of the cases of blindness worldwide. This is a bad disease. It's got two different strains, variola major and variola minor. The major form in its most characteristic pathogenesis is thought to kill about 30% of people it infects. 30% of people. Contrast that to its more minor form, variola minor, which only kills about 1% of people it infects. Since the 15th century, or perhaps 16th century in China, people were essentially vaccinating against variola major by giving people the infection intentionally variola minor. Remember, minor still killed about 1% of people, but compared to 30%, those are pretty good odds. I'd take those odds. Let's think about that for a second. They're using a vaccination in China 500 years ago that kills 1% of people to prevent a more devastating infection that would kill 30% of people. I think about that and I think about COVID-19 and the mortality being less than 1% and all the craziness going on. And it just points out how how morbid life was back then and how, how things have really really changed. We've used vaccines to get rid of many diseases in our population. And while these vaccines can potentially cause harm, cause damage to people, the damage that they cause is nowhere near or close to the damage that would have been caused by the diseases had we not gotten them out of our populations. Smallpox is in the genus Orthopox virus. There's four other members in this genus that infect humans. You have the variola, which we talked about. You have vaccinia, which is a milder disease, which actually formed the basis for the smallpox vaccine that was used to eradicate the disease throughout the world. You've got cowpox, which was used by Jenner to create the first true vaccine. And you've got monkeypox. Smallpox is a crazy story in history. It literally devastated entire civilizations. It tended to come in waves. And when it came, it tended to do a lot of devastation. People have used it for warfare. Britain used it intentionally against Native Americans to decimate their populations. It's been used in other examples throughout the world as well. But since 1977, there has not been a case of smallpox in the entire world. The disease has been eradicated. 
The reason the disease is gone is because of vaccines. This is incredible, people. The idea of eradicating diseases that formerly killed probably billions of people is extraordinary. And we need to remember that even though vaccines can be dangerous, we depend on them for a modern life that we enjoy. Just like freedom isn't free, freedom from disease isn't really free either. It takes sacrifice on the part of all of us as a civilization. And everybody needs to remember that, especially during a pandemic. The timeline of smallpox goes something like this. We've got historical records that show that the disease has been around for probably 2,000 or so years, possibly earlier. Uh, mummies have signs of smallpox from as early as the 3rd century BC. In waves, it would devastate civilizations. It's believed to possibly be the cause of the uh, Antonine Plague, which uh, may have led to the downfall of the Roman Empire. By 1500, China was giving its citizens variola minor intentionally to prevent variola major from taking out a lot of people, as stated earlier. In 1796, Edward Jenner introduced uh, the first kind of vaccine based on cowpox, and it worked, which is extraordinary. Vaccinia was then used to create the more modern vaccine, and through efforts of the World Health Organization and multinational cooperation, we got rid of the disease in 1977. Since then, people no longer need vaccination. The disease is gone. However, there is always the looming threat of bioterrorism. Most young people, including myself, have not been vaccinated. And yes, the name vaccination did come from vaccinia, one of the genus of uh, the Orthopox viridae. The military does vaccinate their people for smallpox. And the reason is because of the constant threat for smallpox being used in bioterrorism is large. And since we all don't have very good immunity anymore, it could be devastating. Smallpox is the only disease humans have fully eradicated. However, there are others that we are trying to get rid of. Another noteworthy disease that we've gotten rid of in ruminants or, or cows and other ungulates and uh, animals like that is a virus called rinderpest that would travel through herds and, and kill off entire herds of cattle. From a human standpoint, we've been trying to get rid of poliomyelitis for years. We've gotten pretty darn close. But there's a few areas of the world where access is limited and it's hard to get rid of the virus. We've been trying really hard to get rid of the guinea worm. Dracunculiasis. This has been done through clean water and behavioral interventions as opposed to vaccination. This has been largely tackled by the Carter Administration, CDC, the World Health Organization, UNICEF, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They've gotten pretty close, down to as few as 25 cases in 2015.
this would be a game changer in certain parts of the world including places like South Sudan, Ethiopia, Chad and other nations within Africa. Yaws, malaria, hookworm, measles, rubella, several other diseases are also on the list as potentials to be eradicated. Disease eradication is a crazy thing. As a doctor I try to cure disease. I want to get rid of it. But the end game is to get rid of diseases in our entire populations. And I tend to be a guy who thinks more on a population scale than on an individual scale. Basically, to eradicate a disease, you need technology. You need to know things. In the case of the guinea worm, worm we need to know how it reproduces, how it gets in the water system, how we can break its life cycle and get rid of the disease. For certain other diseases, it revolves around mass vaccination, vaccinating basically the entire world until it's gone. Different techniques can be used to get rid of diseases. Some diseases we are unable to get rid of based on our current technology. A lot of times diseases can have uh, vectors, they can have other animal reservoirs where they live in. There can be reasons why it's just not possible to get rid of them with our modern technology. But one of the bigger things that comes up and prevents disease uh, eradication is a lack of cooperation among nations and conflict among nations. For instance, polio has come back in places like Afghanistan where there's conflict. It's hard to vaccinate certain populations if they, for instance, don't like you and want to kill you, like the Taliban. So this is not just an issue of technology, it's also an issue of human interaction and how we're getting along and how our conflicts are pursuing. In order to take care of COVID-19 on a global scale, we needed global cooperation. We needed everyone working together, everyone on board, everyone with the plan. That didn't happen. The good news is, is that since COVID-19 kills less than 1% of people it infects, that the fact that we didn't do a good job with this is not going to take out a tremendous amount of people. This is an excellent learning opportunity for us. Now, the morbidity associated with COVID-19 will probably be large and we'll probably live for it with it for a long time. But this is an alarm bell. Worse pandemics are coming. Imagine the emergence of a new disease, a disease that could spread easily from person to person that killed, say, 20% of people, less than smallpox, but still a lot. Let's say it kills young people just as much as it kills older people that are close to their, the end of their life as is. That could be absolutely devastating. And the world has never been more ripe for such pandemics to occur. I want to start off this conversation by defining what an emerging infectious disease is. Different entities define it a few different ways, but in general, emerging diseases can fall into a few different categories. 
One is an outbreak of a previously unknown disease. So this would be something like COVID-19, an infection that humans have never seen before, that we've never diagnosed before. It appears to be brand new. The next, next example are a known disease that are increasing in incidence or in geographic range over the last two decades. And some people also say diseases that they expect to be to increase over the next few decades. And those are really the two main boxes for emerging infectious diseases. Some people also include persistence of infectious diseases that cannot be controlled. So things that, that we're trying to get rid of, we're trying to slow down their spread, but we're not having a lot of success. So the next thing to understand is where diseases actually come from. And there's really just two main pathways that diseases can emerge. One way is for a disease that already infects humans to mutate such that it essentially becomes a new or different disease. Maybe it gains some sort of mutation that allows it to infect humans easier. Maybe it gains a mutation that allows it to spread from human to human easier. Maybe it gains a mutation that allows it to infect different parts of the human body, causing what appears to be a very different disease than was originally uh, documented. So the first pathway is really an existing human disease that mutates or gains mutation which change the infectivity or clinical manifestations of the disease and essentially a new disease is born. And really, if we get down to the root of it, mutation is really the um, where all new diseases actually come from if you boil it down to kind of one actual event. The other places where diseases come from are animals. We call diseases that infect humans from animals zoonoses. Zoo is kind of the base word and, and that makes it kind of easy to remember. But that is where most of our infectious diseases actually originated even today. We can trace them back to animal reservoirs. And that is where a lot of our new diseases actually come from. So you have, let's say, ducks. They've got a certain type of influenza. And let's say those ducks get close to some chickens and some mutation happens in that duck influenza that then allows it to infect chickens or maybe it could readily infect chickens already. But then it acquires another mutation which allows it to infect humans. So it jumps from the chickens to the chicken farmer and you've got a new type of influenza which can be very dangerous to humans because we may not have ever seen this particular influenza virus before, it could potentially cause a really damaging disease because our immune systems aren't used to it. Take that a step further, give it another mutation which allows it to easily spread from human to human, and you've got that situation where you could see an epidemic or even a pandemic occur. And that has actually been borne out in several different pandemics. Basically, um, the 1918 pandemic is thought to have involved, you know, jump from pigs to humans and um, caused, like we said in other episodes, 50 million deaths worldwide. 
So jumping from animals to humans because of new mutations which allow them to infect and spread is really the most common way that new diseases emerge. So like we said, all new diseases really come from mutations which occur in existing pathogens. These may be mutations that occur in infections that already occur in humans, or they be, may be mutations from infections that occur in animals, which thou, then allow them to infect humans, and even worse, spread from human to human. And since a lot of the infections tend to jump from humans or from animals to humans, and actually vice versa as well, but we're more interested in the animal to human pathways, we kind of define stages that this process occurs through. And, and a lot of the more deadly diseases come from animals because our bodies aren't really used to seeing them, whereas when a mutation occurs in a human population, a, a lot of us have already seen the, the original disease, and so sometimes we have some protection. Granted, if it jumps to a new geographic area where people have no immunity, uh, as was the case with smallpox and Native Americans as Europeans uh, colonized, it can be very, very devastating. But the five stages that uh, kind of define the evolution of diseases which allow them to infect humans from animals goes like this. In stage one, really you just have spread of the disease within the animal population. For instance, uh, HIV in chimpanzees and other primates, rabies in foxes or uh, coyotes or other mammal reservoirs, or say Ebola in bats. In stage two, you have the infection that then goes from an animal to one human. So one person is around this animal and they're able to contract that infection. And that can be a, a very dangerous, deadly situation. But sometimes early on in that stage two, it can be hard for a human to then infect or spread the disease to another human. In stage three, we start to see a limited outbreak from human to human. So it's not spreading extremely uh, easily or rapidly, but you see the possibility of human infection spread. And so that's a, a bad sign and, and you want to be very, very cautious at that standpoint. Because when you jump to stage four, you see it spread easier from human to human. It's still able to infect that animal reservoir. And so you kind of have a shared disease between an animal and humans, which can then spread from human to human fairly readily in stage four. In stage five, you get evolution of the disease such that it's really no, it's really now a new disease that just infects humans, spreads from human to human, and no longer affects that animal reservoir where it originally came from. And that evolution the, through those, those five stages is really how most new diseases come to infect humans. And so right now in 2020, it's believed that over 60% of infectious diseases in humans are still in that stage four where they can infect humans spread fairly easily from human to humans but they still occur in different animal reservoirs and so that can be a barrier to eradication obviously if you get rid of the disease in every single human in the world but it's still living in an animal reservoir that you don't have a lot of control over it can become difficult to get rid of that disease because a human could come near that animal and then get that infection and it could again spread from human to human fairly easily. So as a fun aside, I wanted to give some examples of where some of the infectious diseases that we see today originated. 
the first fun example is measles, probably came from ungulates, which are hooved animals like deers and cows and such. HIV probably came from chimpanzees and other non-human primates. SARS-CoV-2 probably came from bats with pangolins or scaled anteaters, probably having something to do with that as well. The H1N1 influenza came from pigs. And the Zika virus, remember Zika before COVID and Ebola became the talk of the town, uh, probably came from Reese's monkeys. It was first isolated in 1947 in the Zika forest in Uganda. So some people might debate some of those origins. I just list those as a fun thing, not as like absolute facts. But you can kind of go through different diseases and see where they probably came from. And it's a really fascinating thing and just a fun thing to do. Okay. Why then are the risks of new infectious diseases more now in 2020 than they've ever been in the history of the world? Well, it's pretty simple. There are now a ton of people in the world. As of 2020, it's estimated that there are 7.8 billion people worldwide. More humans equal more infectious diseases, equal easier spread from human to human because we're closer together. So from just a population standpoint, it makes diseases more common. On top of that, we now live more in cities than ever. So we have a lot of very compacted groups of humans. And particularly in in certain places in Asia, we've got just a lot of humans living very close together. If you look at the origin of a lot of infectious diseases and pandemics, a lot have thought to have originated in China. And it's quite simply because China has a ton of people. Uh, as of today, probably 1.4 billion people. Add to these populations are increasing proximity to animals, and you've got a recipe for disaster from a pandemic standpoint. If you think about China, this is a place where there's, one, a lot of people, but you've also got a lot of markets where you've got a lot of different animals, uh, different species, all within the market, all around different humans. That's a perfect mixing ground for infections to spread from different species, get new mutations, possibly jump to humans, get new mutations, and possibly spread. And that's what we've seen in a lot of different diseases. Two common examples are SARS-1 and SARS-2. On top of that, we are increasingly encroaching into the natural world. We are cutting down forests. We are destroying habitats. That also is bringing people closer and closer to animal reservoirs. And you're going to see diseases jump from humans to animals on a higher uh, rate the closer we get to these different species. So in 2020, because of just the large amount of humans, the increasing encroachment into the natural world, and the fact that we're still that we're eating more meat than ever and there's these not only just huge populations of humans but enormous populations of livestock cows chickens pigs all these animals can pick up diseases or can carry diseases among themselves but also pick up diseases from similar species in the national world natural world like we said 
uh, migratory birds, for instance, can infect chickens with new diseases, which can then jump to humans because the farmers around the chicken a lot. So we've got this perfect recipe for new diseases. We have never been at higher risk to see pandemics. And I am just so thankful that the first big pandemic to come around um, since 1918 was SARS-CoV-2, something that only kills less than 1% of people and something that, uh, yeah, just doesn't kill a huge amount of people and doesn't kill a huge amount of younger, healthy people. I think that this is an absolute warning bell. We need to be worried at this point that at any time a new infection could jump to humans, spread from human to humans, and possibly kill a lot more than 1% of us. Like I said, we have seen much higher percents of people die as a result of infections in the past, and it is almost um, impossible that we won't see more of this in the future. The good news is, is that Way before the COVID-19 pandemic started, a lot of really, really smart people were aware of this increased risk. We're thinking about this. And we've been doing things to uh, mediate the dangers for years. The USDA has been monitoring livestock. And there's other organizations worldwide that do monitor livestock for new diseases and try and basically destroy populations of livestock that get infections that could potentially spread to other uh, other livestock and then and then humans thereafter and that's a big part of surveillance but I'll be honest with you it's not enough on top of that the new vi- the new vaccine that we're using for COVID-19 is a brand new technology it's an mRNA vaccine that was first uh, first conceptualized in the 1990s and that we've been working on for years. The reason being is that we wanted a vaccine scaffold that we could then build a new vaccine for any disease in a very short amount of time. Like we said, it took us years to make vaccines in the past, at least four years, but usually 10 to 15. Because of the risk of new pandemics and new diseases, we wanted a vaccine pipeline where we could make a vaccine in a matter of weeks or a few months, because that's what's needed to prevent catastrophic infections from traveling across the globe rapidly in today's modern economy where people can fly anywhere in the world in a matter of hours. That, of course, too, contributes to the the risk of pandemics, how interconnected we are, how easy it is to fly from one place to another. We can spread diseases country to country so, so easily. So what's been going on is a lot of smart scientists have been ringing the alarm bell even before the pandemic, saying we need to be doing more surveillance. We need to be researching this stuff more and more, come up with better pathways to create vaccines, and thank goodness they were doing that. And that led a lot of the technological groundwork for us to, say, come up with a vaccine in just one year for COVID-19. This stuff is crazy. The risk of pandemics is probably the largest and most looming risk that we face as a population because there are so many of us, we are living so close to animals, and the world is so interconnected in 2020. This stuff is fascinating. Right now, we are attacking our public health officials. We are getting mad at these scientists. And this is really, really sad. Because again, people, we are going to see pandemics that are going to kill much more than 1% of the population 
in the future. And these are the people that are trying to get us ready. COVID-19 was a, a first test. We have failed this test miserably in most countries and certainly on a global coordination scale. But in the future, we need to be better or we're going to pay dearly. All right, so that's a little bit about um, eradicated and emerging infectious diseases. This podcast literally just scratched the surface of this subject. There is so much more to be said, so many papers on it. There's so many uh, uh, very knowledgeable people in this field that have dedicated their lives to it. But I wanted to just give some of the basics because it's so important for every doctor and healthcare worker to understand these basics, especially with the increasing risk um, that we're seeing with the growth of more people and more destruction of habitat more global interconnected transportation, etc. On the next episode, we're going to talk about some of the different already in place types of vaccines, talk about some of those diseases that uh, we've gotten rid of or, or nearly gotten rid of as a result, well, gotten rid of in the United States, I should say, but, but nearly gotten rid of worldwide. And then finally, in a subsequent episode, we're going to talk specifically about the SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccine, what it is, how the technology works, and what it means for the future of vaccine development. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Full Scope Podcast. You can find a lecture summary, key points, and any references on our website, fullscope.org. Additionally, this is the official podcast of Wonder Medicine PLLC, a for-profit medical clinic located in Boise, Idaho. As Carly and I own the clinic and draw revenue from it, we thought we should uh, disclose it as a conflict of interest. Disclaimer alert! It's a trap! The Full Scope podcast was designed and created for educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or provide clinical knowledge specific to the care of any actual patient or population of patients. If you are in need of medical advice or treatment, contact a physician. The views and opinions portrayed on full scope are Dr. Brandenburg's. They do not represent the views or opinions of Wander Medicine Clinic, any of the academic institutions mentioned on the full scope podcast or website, or any of the hospitals which Dr. Brandenburg has or currently works at.